Stand By for Places presents Scary Stories to Hear in the Dark Table of Contents The Pale Man Performed by Dana Watkins The Voice in the Night Performed by Anna Stefanik The Striding Place Performed by Anna Mae Gordon The Pale Man by Julian Long I have not yet met the man in number 212. I do not even know his name. He never patronizes the hotel restaurant. He does not use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other by, we did not speak, although we nodded in semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should very much like to make his acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place. With the exception of the aged lady down the corridor, the only permanent guests are the man in number 212 and myself. However, I should not complain, for this utter quiet is precisely what the doctor prescribed. I wonder if the man in number 212 too has come here for a rest. He's so very pale. Yet I cannot believe that he is ill, for his paleness is not of a sickly cast, but rather wholesome in its ivory clarity. His carriage is that of a man enjoying the best of health. He is tall and straight. He walks erectly with a brisk, athletic stride. His pallor is no doubt congenital, else he would quickly tan under this burning summer sun. He must have traveled here by auto for he certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me, and he checked in only a short time after my arrival. I briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered him ascending with his bag. It is odd that our venerable bellboy did not show him to his room. It is odd, too, that with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, he should have chosen number 212 at the extreme rear. The building is a long and narrow affair, three stories high. The rooms are all on the east side, as the west wall is flush with a decrepit business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, bloated paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously on being given number 201, which is at the front and blessed with a southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a Hitler mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it, as it is ordinarily reserved for his more profitable transient trade. I fear my stubborn insistence has made him an enemy. If only I had been as self-assertive thirty years ago. I should now be a full-fledged professor, instead of a broken-down assistant. I still smart from the cavalier manner in which the president of the university summarily recommended my vacation. No doubt he acted under my best interests. The people who have dominated my poor life invariably have. Oh, well. The summer's rest will probably do me considerable good. It is pleasant to be away from the university. There's something positively gratifying about the absence of the graduate student face. If only it were not so lonely. I must devise a way of meeting the pale man in number 212. Perhaps the room clerk can arrange matters. 
I have been here exactly a week. And if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. Although the tradespeople accept my money with flattering eagerness, they studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. I'm afraid I can never cultivate their society, unless I can arrange to have my ancestors recognized as local residents for the last 150 years. Despite the coolness of my reception, I have been frequently venturing abroad. In the back of my mind, I have cherished hopes that I might encounter the man in number 211. Incidentally, I wonder why he's moved from number 212. There is certainly little advantage in coming only one room nearer to the front. I noticed the change yesterday, when I saw him coming out of his new room. We nodded again, and this time I thought I detected a certain malign satisfaction in his somber black eyes. He must know that I am eager to make his acquaintance, yet his manner forbids overtures. If he wants to make me go all the way, he can go to the devil. I'm not the sort to run after anybody. Indeed, the surly diffidence of the room clerk has been enough to prevent me from questioning him about his mysterious guest. I wonder where the pale man takes his meals. I've been absenting myself from the hotel restaurant and patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I have ventured inquiries about the man in number 210. No one at any restaurant remembered his having been there. Perhaps he has entree into the Brahmin homes of this town. And again, he may have found a boarding house. I shall have to learn if there be one. The pale man must be difficult to please, for he has again changed his room. I am baffled by his conduct. If he is so desirous of locating himself more conveniently in the hotel, why does he not move to number 202, which is the nearest available room to the front? Perhaps I can make his inability to locate himself permanently an excuse for starting a conversation. I see we're closer neighbors now, I might casually say. But that is too banal. I must await a better opportunity. He has done it again. He's now occupying number 209. I am intrigued by his little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could he have? I should think he would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. If he were not stone deaf, I would ask him. At present, I feel too exhausted to attempt such an enervating conversation. I am tremendously interested in the pale man's next move. He must either skip a room or remain where he is, for a permanent guest, a very old lady, occupies number 208. She has not budged from her room since I have been here, and I imagine she does not intend to. I wonder what the pale man will do. I wait his decision with the nervous excitement of a devotee at the track on the eve of a big race. After all, I have so little diversion. Well, the mysterious guest was not forced to remain where he was, nor did he have to skip a room. The lady in number 208 simplified matters by conveniently dying. No one knows the cause of her death, but it is generally attributed to old age. She was buried this morning. I was among the curious few who attended her funeral. When I returned home from the mortuary, I was in time to see the pale man leaving her room. Already he has moved in. He favored me with a smile, whose meaning I have tried in vain to decipher. I cannot but believe that he meant it to have some significance. 
He acted as if there were between us some secret that I failed to appreciate. But then perhaps his smile was meaningless after all, and only ambiguous by chance. Like that of the Mona Lisa. My man of mystery now resides in number 207, and I am not in the least surprised. I would have been astonished had he not made his scheduled move. I've almost given up trying to understand his eccentric conduct. I do not know a single thing more about him than I knew with the day he arrived. I wonder whence he came. There's something indefinably foreign about his manner. I'm curious to hear his voice. I like to imagine that he speaks the exotic tongue of some faraway country. If only I could somehow inveigle him into conversation. Oh, I wish that I were possessed of the glib assurance of a college boy who can address himself to the most distinguished celebrity without batting an eye. It's no wonder that I am only an assistant professor. I'm worried. This morning, I awoke to find myself lying prone upon the floor. I was fully clothed. I must have fallen exhausted there after I returned to our room last night. I wonder if my condition is more serious than I expected. Until now, I've been inclined to discount the fears of those who've pulled a long face about me. For the first time, I recall the prolonged hand clasp of the president when he bade me goodbye from the university. Obviously, he never expected to see me again. Of course, I'm not that unwell. Nevertheless, I must be more careful. Thank heaven I have no dependents to worry about. I've not even a wife. For I was not willing to exchange the loneliness of a bachelor for the loneliness of a husband. I can say in all sincerity that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is, or is not, I'll try to get along. I have been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I have neglected to make note of a most extraordinary incident. The pale man has done an astounding thing. He has skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We are now very close neighbors. We shall meet oftener, and my chances for making his acquaintance are now greater. <clears throat> I have confined myself to my bed during the last few days and have had my food brought to me. <clears throat> I even called a local doctor whom I suspected to be a quack. He looked me over with professional indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he doesn't want me to climb stairs. For this bit of information, he received a $10 bill, which, as I directed him, he fished out of my coat pocket. A pickpocket could not have done better. He'd not been gone long when I was visited by the room clerk. That worthy suggested, with a great show of kindly concern, that I use the facilities of the local hospital. It was so modern and all that. With more firmness than I have been able to muster in a long time, I gave him to understand that I intended to remain where I am. Frowning sullenly, he stiffly retired. The doctor must have paused long enough downstairs to tell him a pretty story. It is obvious that he is afraid I shall die in his best room. The pale man is up to his old tricks. Last night when I tottered down the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. 
The pale man sat in a rocking chair, idly smoking a cigarette. He looked up into my eyes and smiled that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has so deeply puzzled me. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the man's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so inane, so utterly lacking in motive. I feel that I shall never meet the pale man. But at least I'm going to learn his identity. Tomorrow, I shall ask for the room clerk and deliberately interrogate him. I know now. I know the identity of the pale man. And I know the meaning of his smile. Early this afternoon, I summoned the room clerk to my bedside. Please, tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the man in number 202? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendingly. You must be mistaken, that room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is. I snapped in irritation. I myself saw the man there only two nights ago. He is a tall, handsome fellow with dark eyes and hair. He is unusually pale. He checked in the day that I arrived. The hotel man regarded me dubiously as if I were trying to impose upon him. But I assure you there is no such person in the house. As for his checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why, I've seen him twenty times. First he had number 212 at the end of the corridor, then he kept moving towards the front, and now he's next door, in number 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy, he exclaimed, and I saw that he meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he had gone, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale man's door. There is no doubt that he believes the room to be empty. That is that. I can now understand the events of the past few weeks. <coughs> I now comprehend the significance of the death in number 207. I feel partly responsible for the old lady's passing. After all, I brought the pale man with me. But it was not I who fixed his path. Why he chose to approach me, room after room through the length of this dreary hotel. Why his path crossed the threshold of the woman in number 207. Those mysteries I cannot explain. I suppose I should have guessed his identity when he skipped the three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph, he advanced until he was almost to my door. He will be coming by and by to inhabit this room, his ultimate goal. When he comes, I shall at least be able to return his smile of grim recognition. Meanwhile, I have only to wait beyond my bolted door. The door swings slowly open.
The Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson. It was a dark, starless night. We were becalmed in the northern Pacific. Our exact position I do not know, for the sun had been hidden during the course of a weary, breathless week by a thin haze which had seemed to float above us, about the height of our mastheads, at whiles descending and shrouding the surrounding sea. With there being no wind, we had steadied the tiller, and I was the only man on deck. The crew, consisting of two men and a boy, were sleeping forward in their den, while Will, my friend and the master of our little craft, was aft in his bunk on the port side of the little cabin. Suddenly, from out of the surrounding darkness, there came a hail. Schooner ahoy! The cry was so unexpected that I gave no immediate answer because of my surprise. It came again a voice curiously throaty and inhuman, calling from somewhere upon the dark sea away on our port broadside. Schooner, ahoy! Hello, I sang out, having gathered my wits somewhat. What are you? What do you want? You need not be afraid, answered the queer voice, having probably noticed some trace of confusion in my tone. I am only an old man. The pause sounded odd, but it was only afterward that it came back to me with any significance. "'Why don't you come alongside, then?' I queried somewhat snappishly, for I liked not his hinting at my having been a trifle shaken. "'I... I can't. It wouldn't be safe. I...' The voice broke off, and there was silence. "'What do you mean?' I asked, growing more and more astonished. "'What's not safe? Where are you?' I listened for a moment, but there came no answer. And then, a sudden indefinite suspicion of I knew not what coming to me, I stepped swiftly to the binnacle and took out the lighted lamp. At the same time, I knocked on the deck with my heel to waken Will. Then I was back at the side, throwing the yellow funnel of light out into the silent immensity beyond our rail. As I did so, I heard a slight muffled cry, and then the sound of a splash as though someone had dipped oars abruptly. Yet I cannot say with certainty that I saw anything, save it seemed to me that with the first flash of the light there had been something upon the waters, where now there was nothing. Hello there, I called. What foolery is this? But there came only the indistinct sounds of a boat being pulled away into the night. Then I heard Will's voice from the direction of the after-scuttle. What's up, George? Come here, Will, I said. What is it? he asked, coming across the deck. I told him the queer thing that had happened. He put several questions, then, after a moment's silence, he raised his hands to his lips and hailed, Boat, ahoy! From a long distance away, there came back to us a faint reply, and my companion repeated his call. Presently, after a short period of silence, there grew on our hearing the muffled sound of oars, at which Will hailed again. This time, there was a reply. Put away the light. I'm damned if I will, I muttered, but Will told me to do as the voice bade, and I shoved it down under the bulwarks. Come nearer, he said, and the oar strokes continued. Then, when apparently some half-dozen fathoms distant, they again ceased. Come alongside, exclaimed Will. There's nothing to be frightened of aboard here. Promise that you will not show the light? What's to do with you, I burst out, that you're so infernally afraid of the light? Because began the voice, and stopped short. "'Because what?' I asked quickly. 
Will put his hand on my shoulder. Shut up a minute, old man, he said in a low voice. Let me tackle him. He leaned more over the rail. See here, mister, he said. This is a pretty queer business, you coming upon us like this, right out in the middle of the blessed Pacific. How are we to know what sort of a hanky-panky trick you're up to? You say there's only one of you. How are we to know unless we get a squint at you, eh? What's your objection to the light, anyway? As he finished, I heard the noise of the oars again, and then the voice came, but now from a greater distance, and sounding extremely hopeless and pathetic. I am sorry, sorry, I would not have troubled you, only I am hungry, and so is she. The voice died away, and the sound of the oars dipping irregularly was borne to us. Stop, sang out Will, I don't want to drive you away. Come back, we'll keep the light hidden if you don't like it. He turned to me. It's a damn queer rig, this, but I think there's nothing to be afraid of. There was a question in his tone, and I replied, No, I think the poor devil's been wrecked around here and gone crazy. The sound of the oars drew nearer. Shove that lamp back in the binnacle, said Will, and then he leaned over the rail and listened. I replaced the lamp and came back to his side. The dipping of the oars ceased some dozen yards distant. Won't you come alongside now? asked Will in an even voice. I have had the lamp put back in the binnacle. I... I cannot, replied the voice. I dare not come nearer. I dare not even pay you for the the provisions. That's all right, said Will, and hesitated. You're welcome to as much grub as you can take. Again, he hesitated. You are very good, exclaimed the voice. May God, who understands everything, reward you... It broke off huskily. The, the lady, said Will abruptly, is she? I have left her behind upon the island, came the voice. What island? I cut in. I know not its name, returned the voice. I would to God, it began and checked itself as suddenly. Could we not send a boat for her? Asked Will at this point. No, said the voice with extraordinary emphasis. My God, no. There was a moment's pause. Then it added, in a tone which seemed a merited reproach, It was because of our want I ventured, because her agony tortured me. I am a forgetful brute, exclaimed Will. Just wait a minute, whoever you are, and I will bring you up something at once. In a couple of minutes he was back again, and his arms were full of various edibles. He paused at the rail. Can't you come alongside for them? he asked. No, I dare not replied the voice, and it seemed to me that in its tones I detected a note of stifled craving, as though the owner hushed a mortal desire. It came to me then in a flash that the poor old creature out there in the darkness was suffering for actual need for that which Will held in his arms, and yet, because of some unintelligible dread, refraining from dashing to the side of our schooner and receiving it. And with the lightning-like conviction there came the knowledge that the invisible was not mad, but sanely facing some intolerable horror. Damn it, Will, I said, full of many feelings over which predominated a vast sympathy. Get a box. We must float off the stuff to a minute. This we did, propelling it away from the vessel out into the darkness by means of a boat hook. In a minute, a slight cry from the invisible came to us, and we knew that he had secured the box. A little later, he called out a farewell to us, and so heartful a blessing that I am sure we were the better for it. Then, without more ado, we heard the ply of oars across the darkness. Pretty soon off, remarked Will, with perhaps just a little sense of injury. 
Wait, I replied. I think somehow he'll come back. He must have been badly needing that food. And the lady, said Will. For a moment he was silent, then he continued. It's the queerest thing ever I've tumbled across since I've been fishing. Yes, I said, and fell to pondering. And so the time slipped away. An hour, another, and still Will stayed with me, for the queer adventure had knocked all desire for sleep out of him. The third hour was three parts through, and we heard again the sound of oars across the silent ocean. Listen, said Will, a low note of excitement in his voice. He's coming, just as I thought, I muttered. The dipping of the oars grew nearer, and I noted that the strokes were firmer and longer. The food had been needed. They came to a stop a little distance off the broadside, and the queer voice came again to us through the darkness. Schooner ahoy! That you? asked Will. Yes, replied the voice. I left you suddenly, but but there was great need. The lady? questioned Will. The lady is grateful now on earth. She will be more grateful soon in, in heaven. Will began to make some reply in a puzzled voice, but became confused and broke off. I said nothing. I was wondering at the curious pauses, and apart from my wonder, I was full of a great sympathy. The voice continued, We, she and I, have talked as we shared the result of God's tenderness and yours. Will interposed, but without coherence. I beg you not to, to belittle your deed of Christian charity this night, said the voice. Be sure that it has not escaped his notice. It stopped and there was a full minute's silence. Then it came again. We have spoken together upon that which, which has befallen us. We had thought to go out without telling anyone of the terror which has come into our lives. She is with me in believing that tonight's happenings are under a special ruling, and that it is God's wish that we should tell to you all that we have suffered since... Since... Yes, said Will softly. Since the sinking of the albatross. Ah! I exclaimed involuntarily. She left Newcastle for Frisco some six months ago and hasn't been heard of since. Yes, answered the voice. But some few degrees to the north of the line, she was caught in a terrible storm and dismasted. When the calm came, it was found that she was leaking badly, and presently, it falling to a calm, the sailors took to the boats, leaving, leaving a young lady, my fiancée, and myself upon the wreck. We were below, gathering together a few of our belongings when they left. They were entirely callous through fear, and when we came up upon the decks we saw them only as small shapes afar off upon the horizon. Yet we did not despair, but set to work and constructed a small raft. Upon this we put such few matters as it would hold, including a quantity of water and some ship's biscuit. Then, the vessel being very deep in the water, we got ourselves onto the raft and pushed off. It was later that I observed we seemed to be in the way of some tide or current, which bore us from the ship at an angle, so that in the course of three hours, by my watch, her hull became invisible to our sight, her broken masts remaining in view for a somewhat longer period. Then, toward evening, it grew misty, and so through the night. The next day we were still encompassed by the mist, the weather remaining quiet. For four days we drifted through this strange haze until... On the evening of the fourth day, there grew upon our ears the murmur of breakers at a distance. 
Gradually it became plainer, and somewhat after midnight, it appeared to sound upon either hand at no very great space. The raft was raised upon a swell several times, and then we were in smooth water, and the noise of the breakers was behind. When the morning came, we found that we were in a sort of great lagoon, but of this we noticed little at the time, for close before us, through the enshrouding mist, loomed the hull of a large sailing vessel. With one accord we fell upon our knees and thanked God, for we thought that here was an end to our perils. We had much to learn. The raft drew near to the ship, and we shouted on them to take us aboard, but none answered. Presently the raft touched against the side of the vessel, and seeing a rope hanging downward, I seized it and began to climb. Yet I had much ado to make my way up because of a kind of grey lichenous fungus that had seized upon the rope and blotched the side of the ship lividly. I reached the rail and clambered over it onto the deck. Here I saw that the decks were covered in great patches with the grey masses, some of them rising into nodules several feet in height. But at the time I thought less of this matter than of the possibility of there being people aboard the ship. I shouted, but none answered. Then I went to the door below the poop deck. I opened it and peered in. There was a great smell of staleness, so that I knew in a moment that nothing living was within. And with the knowledge I shut the door quickly, for I felt suddenly lonely. I went back to the side where I had scrambled up. My, my sweetheart was still sitting quietly upon the raft. Seeing me look down, she called up to know whether there were any aboard the ship. I replied that the vessel had the appearance of having been long deserted, but that if she would wait a little, I would see whether there was anything in the shape of a ladder by which she could ascend to the deck. Then we would make a search through the vessel together. A little later, on the opposite side of the decks, I found a rope-side ladder. This I carried across, and a minute afterward, she was beside me. Together we explored the cabins and apartments in the after part of the ship, but nowhere was there any sign of life. Here and there, within the cabins themselves, we came across odd patches of that queer fungus, but this, as my sweetheart said, could be cleansed away. In the end, having assured ourselves that the after portion of the vessel was empty, we picked our way to the bows, between the ugly grey nodules of that strange growth, and here we made a further search, which told us that there was indeed none aboard but ourselves. This being now beyond any doubt, we returned to the stern of the ship and proceeded to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. Together we cleared out and cleaned two of the cabins, and after that I made examination whether there was anything eatable in the ship. This I soon found was so, and thanked God for his goodness. In addition to this, I discovered a fresh water pump, and having fixed it, I found the water drinkable, though somewhat unpleasant to the taste. For several days, we stayed aboard the ship without attempting to get to the shore. We were busily engaged in making the place habitable. Yet, even thus early, we became aware that our lot was even less to be desired than might have been imagined. For though, as a first step, we scraped away the odd patches of growth that studded the floors and walls of the cabins and saloon, Yet they returned almost to their original size within the space of twenty-four hours, which not only discouraged us, but gave us a feeling of vague unease. Still, we would not admit ourselves beaten, so set to work afresh, and not only scraped away the fungus, but soaked the places where it had been with carbolic, a canful of which I had found in the pantry. Yet by the end of the week, the growth had returned in full strength, and in addition it had spread to other places, as though our touching it had allowed germs from it to travel elsewhere. On the seventh morning, my sweetheart woke to find a small patch of it growing on her pillow, close to her face. 
At that she came to me as soon as she could get her garments upon her. I was in the galley at the time, lighting the fire for breakfast. Come here, John, she said, and led me aft. When I saw the thing upon her pillow, I shuddered, and then and there we agreed to go right out of the ship and see whether we could not fare to make ourselves more comfortable ashore. Hurriedly we gathered together our few belongings, and even among these I found that the fungus had been at work, for one of her shawls had a little lump of it growing near one edge. I threw the whole thing over the side without saying anything to her. The raft was still alongside, but it was too clumsy to guide, and I lowered down a small boat that hung across the stern, and in this we made our way to the shore. Yet as we drew near to it, I became gradually aware that here the vile fungus which had driven us from the ship was growing riot. In places it rose into horrible, fantastic mounds which seemed almost to quiver, as with a quiet life when the wind blew across them. Here and there it took on the forms of vast fingers, and in others it just spread out flat and smooth and treacherous. Odd places it appeared as grotesque stunted trees, extraordinarily kinked and gnarled, the whole quaking vilely at times. At first it seemed to us that there was no single portion of the surrounding shore which was not hidden beneath the masses of the hideous lichen. Yet in this I found we were mistaken, for somewhat later, coasting along the shore at a little distance, we descried a smooth white patch of what appeared to be fine sand, and there we landed. It was not sand. What it was I do not know. All that I have observed is that upon it the fungus will not grow. While everywhere else, save where the sand-like earth wanders oddly, pathwise, amid the grey desolation of the lichen, there is nothing but that loathsome greyness. It is difficult to make you understand how cheered we were to find one place that was absolutely free from the growth, and here we deposited our belongings. Then we went back to the ship for such things as it seemed to us we should need. Among other matters, I managed to bring ashore with me one of the ship's sails. With it, I constructed two small tents, which, though exceedingly rough-shaped, served the purposes for which they were intended. In these we lived and stored our various necessities, and thus for a matter of some four weeks all went smoothly and without particular unhappiness. Indeed, I may say with much happiness, for we... We're together. It was on the thumb of her right hand that the growth first showed. It was only a small circular spot, much like a little gray mole. My God, how the fear leaped to my heart when she showed me the place. We cleansed it between us, washing it with carbolic and water. In the morning of the following day, she showed her hand to me again. The gray, warty thing had returned. For a little while we looked at one another in silence, then, still wordless, we started again to remove it. In the midst of the operation she spoke suddenly, "'What's that on the side of your face, dear?' Her voice was sharp with anxiety. I put my hand up to feel. "'There, under the hair by your ear, a little to the front a bit.' My finger rested upon the place, and then I knew. "'Let us get your thumb done first, I said, and she submitted only because she was afraid to touch me until it was cleansed. I finished washing and disinfecting her thumb, and then she turned to my face. After it was finished, we sat together and talked a while of many things, for there had come into our lives sudden, very terrible thoughts. We were all at once afraid of something worse than death. We spoke of loading the boat with provisions and water and making our way out onto the sea, yet we were helpless for many causes, and... and the growth had attacked us already. 
we decided to stay. God would do with us what was his will. We would wait. A month, two months, three months passed, and the places grew somewhat, and there had come others. Yet we fought so strenuously with the fear that its headway was but slow, comparatively speaking. Occasionally we ventured off to the ship for such stores as we needed. There we found that the fungus grew persistently. One of the nodules on the main deck soon became as high as my head. We had now given up all thought or hope of leaving the island. We had realized that it would be unallowable to go among healthy humans with the thing from which we were suffering. With this determination and knowledge in our minds, we knew that we should have to husband our food and water, for we did not know at that time but that we should possibly live for many years. This reminds me that I have told you I am an old man. Judged by years, this is not so, but... But... He broke off, then continued somewhat abruptly. As I was saying, we knew that we should have to use care in the matter of food, but we had no idea then how little food there was left of which to take care. It was a week later that I made the discovery that all the other bread tanks, which I had supposed full, were empty, and that beyond odd tins of vegetables and meat and some other matters, we had nothing on which to depend but the bread in the tank which I had already opened. After learning this, I bestirred myself to do what I could and set to work at fishing in the lagoon, but with no success. At this I was somewhat inclined to feel desperate until the thought came to me to try outside the lagoon in the open sea. Here at times I caught odd fish, but so infrequently that they proved a but little help in keeping us from the hunger which threatened. It seemed to me that our deaths were likely to come by hunger, and not by the growth of the thing which had seized upon our bodies. We were in this state of mind when the fourth month wore out. Then I made a very horrible discovery. One morning, a little before midday, I came off from the ship with a portion of the biscuits which were left. In the mouth of her tent, I saw my sweetheart sitting, eating something. What is it, my dear? I called out as I leaped ashore, yet on hearing my voice she seemed confused and turning slyly through something toward the edge of the little clearing. It fell short, and a vague suspicion having arisen within me, I walked across and picked it up. It was a piece of the grey fungus. As I went to her with it in my hand, she turned deathly pale, then a rose red. I felt strangely dazed and frightened. My dear, my dear, I said and could say no more. Yet on my words she broke down and cried bitterly. Gradually, as she calmed, I got from her the news that she had tried it the preceding day and... and liked it. I got her to promise on her knees not to touch it again, however great our hunger. After she had promised, she told me that the desire for it had come suddenly, and that until the moment of desire, she had experienced nothing toward it but the most extreme repulsion. Later in the day, feeling strangely restless and much shaken with the thing which I had discovered, I made my way along one of the twisted paths formed by the white sand-like substance which led among the fungoid growth. I had once before ventured along there, but not to any great distance. This time, being involved in perplexing thought, I went much farther than hitherto. Suddenly, I was called to myself by a queer hoarse sound on my left. Turning quickly, I saw that there was movement, 
among an extraordinarily shaped mass of fungus close to my elbow. It was swaying uneasily, as though it possessed life of its own. Abruptly, as I stared, the thought came to me that the thing had a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a distorted human creature. Even as the fancy flashed into my brain, there was a slight, sickening noise of tearing, and I saw that one of the branch-like arms was detaching itself from the surrounding masses and coming toward me. The head of the thing, a shapeless gray ball, inclined in my direction. I stood stupidly, and the vile arm brushed across my face. I gave out a frightened cry and ran back a few paces. There was a sweetish taste upon my lips where the thing had touched me. I licked them, and was immediately filled with an inhuman desire. I turned and seized a mass of the fungus. Then more and more. I was insatiable. In the midst of devouring, the remembrance of the morning's discovery swept into my amazed brain. It was sent by God. I dashed the fragment I held to the ground, then utterly wretched and feeling a dreadful guiltiness. I made my way back to the encampment. I think she knew, by some marvelous intuition which love must have given, so soon as she set eyes on me. Her quiet sympathy made it easier for me, and I told her of my sudden weakness, yet omitted to mention the extraordinary thing which had gone before. I desired to spare her all unnecessary terror. But for myself, I had added an intolerable knowledge to breed an incessant terror in my brain, for I doubted not that I had seen the end of one of these men who had come to the island in the ship in the lagoon, and in that monstrous ending I had seen our own. Thereafter we kept from the abominable food, though the desire for it had entered into our blood. Yet our dreary punishment was upon us, for day by day, with monstrous rapidity, the fungoid growth took hold of our poor bodies. Nothing we could do would check it materially, and so... And so... We who had been human became... Well, it matters less each day. Only... Only we had been man and maid! And day by day... The fight is more dreadful to withstand the hunger-lust for the terrible lichen. A week ago we ate the last of the biscuit, and since that time I have caught three fish. I was out here fishing tonight when your schooner drifted upon me out of the mist. I hailed you. You know the rest, and may God, out of his great heart, bless you for your goodness to uh, a couple of poor outcast souls. There was the dip of an oar, another. Then the voice came again, and for the last time, sounding through the slight surrounding mist, ghostly and mournful. God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye, we shouted together hoarsely, our hearts full of many emotions I glanced about me. I became aware that the dawn was upon us. The sun flung a stray beam across the hidden sea, pierced the mist dully, and lit up the receding boat with a gloomy fire. Indistinctly, I saw something nodding between the oars. I thought of a sponge. 
a great gray nodding sponge. The oars continued to ply. They were gray as was the boat, and my eyes searched a moment vainly for the conjunction of hand and oar. My gaze flashed back to the head. It nodded forward as the oars went backward for the stroke. Then the oars were dipped. The boat shot out of the patch of light, and the the thing went nodding into the mist. The Striding Place by Gertrude Atherton Weigall, continental and detached, tired early of grouse shooting. To stand propped against a sawed fence while his host's workmen routed up the birds with long poles and drove them towards the waiting guns made him feel himself a parody on the ancestors who had roamed the moors and forests of this west riding of Yorkshire in hot pursuit of game worth the killing. But when in England in August, he always accepted whatever proffered for the season, and invited his host to shoot pheasants on his estates in the south. The amusements of life, he argued, should be accepted with the same philosophy as its ills. It had been a bad day. A heavy rain had made the moor so spongy that it fairly sprang beneath the feet. Whether or not the grouse had haunts of their own, wherein they were immune from rheumatism, the bag had been small. The women, too, were an unusually dull lot. With the exception of a new-minded debutante who bothered Weigall at dinner by demanding the verbal restoration of the vague paintings on the vaulted roof above them. But it was no one of these things that sat on Weigall's mind as, when the other men went up to bed, he let himself out of the castle and sauntered down to the river. His intimate friend, the companion of his boyhood, the chum of his college days, his fellow traveler in many lands, the man for whom he possessed stronger affection than for all men, had mysteriously disappeared two days ago. And his track might have sprung to the upper air for all trace he had left behind him, he had been a guest on the adjoining estate during the past week, shooting with the fervor of the true sportsman, making love in the intervals to Adeline Coven, and apparently in the best of spirits. As far as was known, there was nothing to lower his mental mercury, for his rent roll was a large one. Miss Coven blushed whenever he looked at her, and being one of the best shots in England, he was never happier than in August. The suicide theory was preposterous, all agreed, and there was as little reason to believe him murdered. Nevertheless, he had walked out of March Abbey two nights ago without hat or overcoat, and had not been seen since. The country was being patrolled night and day. A hundred keepers and workmen were beating the woods and poking the bogs on the moors, but as yet, not so much as a handkerchief had been found. Weigall did not believe for a moment that Wyatt Gifford was dead. 
and although it was impossible not to be affected by the general uneasiness, he was disposed to be more angry than frightened. At Cambridge, Gifford had been an incorrigible practical joker, and by no means had outgrown the habit. It would be like him to cut across the country in his evening clothes, board a cattle train, and amuse himself touching up the picture of the sensation in West Riding. However, Weigall's affection for his friend was too deep to companion with tranquility in the present state of doubt, and instead of going to bed early with the other men, he determined to walk until ready for sleep. He went down to the river and followed the path through the woods. There was no moon, but the stars sprinkled their cold light upon the pretty belt of water flowing placidly past wood and ruin between green masses of overhanging rocks or sloping banks tangled with tree and shrub, leaping occasionally over stones with the harsh notes of an angry scold, to recover its equanimity the moment the way was clear again. It was very dark in the depths where Weigall trod. He smiled as he recalled a remark of Gifford's. An English wood is like a good many other things in life. Very promising at a distance but a hollow mockery when you get within. You see daylight on both sides, and the sun freckles the very bracken. Our woods need the night to make them seem what they ought to be, what they once were, before our ancestors' descendants demanded so much more money in these so much more various days. Weigall strolled along, smoking, and thinking of his friend, his pranks, many of which had done more credit to his imagination than this, and recalling conversations that had lasted the night through. Just before the end of the London season, they had walked the streets one hot night after a party, discussing the various theories of the soul's destiny. That afternoon they had met at the coffin of a college friend whose mind had been a blank for the past three years. Some months previously, they had called at the asylum to see him. His expression had been senile, his face imprinted with the record of debauchery. In death, his face was placid, intelligent, without ignoble lineation, the face of the man they had known at college. Weigall and Gifford had no time to comment there, and the afternoon and evening were full, but Coming forth from the house of festivity together, they had reverted almost at once to the topic. I cherish the theory, Gifford had said, that the soul sometimes lingers in the body after death. During madness, of course, it is an impotent prisoner, albeit a conscious one. Fancy its agony and its horror. What more natural than that? When the life spark goes out, the tortured soul should take possession of the vacant skull and triumph once more for a few hours, while old friends look their last. It has had time to repent, while compelled to crouch and behold the result of its work, and it has shrived itself into a state of comparative purity. If I had me way, I should stay inside me bones until the coffin had gone into its niche, that I might obviate from a poor old comrade the tragic impersonality of death. 
and I should like to see justice done to it, as it were, to see it lowered among its ancestors with the ceremony and solemnity that are its due. I'm afraid that if I dissevered myself too quickly, I should yield to curiosity and hasten to investigate the mysteries of space. You believe in the soul as an independent entity, then? That it and the vital principle are not one and the same? Absolutely! The body and soul are twins, life comrades, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but always loyal in the last instance. Someday, when I am tired of the world, I shall go to India and become a Mahatma, solely for the pleasure of receiving proof during life of this independent relationship. Suppose you are not sealed up properly and returned after one of your astral flights to find your earthly part unfit for habitation. It is an experiment I don't think I should care to try. Unless even juggling with soul and flesh had pulled. That would not be an uninteresting predicament. I should rather enjoy experimenting with broken machinery. The high, wild roar of water smote suddenly upon Weigal's ear and checked his memories. He left the wood and walked out on the huge slippery stones which nearly closed the river wharf at this point, and watched the waters boil down into the narrow pass with their furious, untiring energy. The black quiet of the woods rose high on either side. The stars seemed colder and whiter just above. On either hand, the perspective of the river might have run into a rayless cavern. There was no lonelier spot in England, nor one which had the right to claim so many ghosts. If ghosts there were. Weigall was not a coward, but he recalled uncomfortably the tales of those that had been done to death in the Strid. Wordsworth's boy of Egremont had been disposed of by the practical Whitaker, but countless others, more venturesome than wise, had gone down into that narrow, boiling course, never to appear in the still pool a few yards beyond. Below the great rocks which formed the walls of the Strid was believed to be a natural vault, onto whose shelves the dead were drawn. The spot had an ugly fascination. Weigall stood, visioning skeletons, uncoffined and green, the home of the eyeless things which had devoured all that had covered and filled that rattling symbol of man's mortality, then fell to wondering if anyone had attempted to leap the strid of late. It was covered with slime. He had never seen it look so treacherous. He shuddered and walked away impelled, despite his manhood, to flee the spot. As he did so, something tossing in the foam below the fall, something as white yet independent of it, caught his eye and arrested his step. Then he saw that it was describing a contrary motion to the rushing water, an upward-backward motion. Weigall stood rigid, breathless. He fancied he heard the crackling of his hair. Was that a hand? It thrust itself still higher above the boiling foam, turned sidewise, and four frantic fingers were distinctly visible against the black rock beyond. 
Weigal's superstitious terror left him. A man was there, struggling to free himself from the suction beneath the strid, swept down, doubtless, but a moment before his arrival, perhaps as he stood with his back to the current. He stepped as close to the edge as he dared. The hand doubled as if in imprecation, shaking savagely in the face of that force which leaves its creatures to immutable law, then spread wide again, clutching, expanding, crying for help as audibly as the human voice. Weigall dashed to the nearest tree, dragged and twisted off a branch with his strong arms, and returned as swiftly to the strid. The hand was in the same place, still gesticulating as wildly. The body was undoubtedly caught in the rocks below, perhaps already halfway along one of those hideous shelves. Weigall let himself down upon a lower rock, braced his shoulder against the mass beside him, then, leaning out over the water, thrust the branch into the hand. The fingers clutched it convulsively. Weigall tugged powerfully, his own feet dragged perilously near the edge. For a moment he produced no impression. Then an arm shot above the waters. The blood sprang to Weigall's head. He was choked with the impression that the strid had him in her roaring hold, and he saw nothing. Then the mist cleared. The hand and arm were near her, although the rest of the body was still concealed by the foam. Weigall peered out with distended eyes, the meager light revealed in the cufflinks of a peculiar device. The fingers clutching the branch were as familiar. Weigall forgot the slippery stones, the terrible death if he stepped too far. He pulled with passionate will and muscle. Memories flung themselves into the hot light of his brain trooping rapidly upon each other's heels as in the thought of the drowning. Most of the pleasures of his life, good and bad, were identified in some way with this friend. Scenes of college days, of travel, where they had deliberately sought adventure and stood between one another and death upon more occasions than one. Of hours of delightful companionship among the treasures of art and others in the pursuit of pleasure, flashed like the changing particles of a kaleidoscope. Weigall had loved several women, but he would have flouted in these moments the thought that he had ever loved any woman as he loved Wyatt Gifford. There were so many charming women in the world, and in the 32 years of his life he had never known another man to whom he had cared to give his intimate friendship. He threw himself on his face. His wrists were cracking. The skin was torn from his hands. The fingers still gripped the stick. There was life in them yet. Suddenly, something gave way. The hand swung about, tearing the branch from Weigall's grasp. The body had been liberated and flung outward, though still submerged by the foam and spray. Weigall scrambled to his feet and sprang along the rocks, knowing that the danger from suction was over and that Gifford must be carried straight to the quiet pool. Gifford was a fish in the water and could live under it longer than most men. If he survived this, it would not be the first time that his pluck and science had saved him from drowning. Weigall reached the pool. A man in his evening clothes floated on it, his face turned towards a projecting rock over which his arm had fallen, upholding the body. The hand that had held the branch hung limply over the rock, its white reflection visible in the black water. Weigall plunged into the shallow pool, lifted Gifford in his arms, and returned to the bank. 
He laid the body down and threw off his coat that he might be the freer to practice the methods of resuscitation. He was glad of the moment's respite. The valiant life in the man might have been exhausted in that last struggle. He had not dared to look at his face, to put his ear to the heart. The hesitation lasted but a moment. There was no time to lose. He turned to his prostrate friend. As he did so, something strange and disagreeable smote his senses. For a half moment, he did not appreciate its nature. Then his teeth clacked together, his feet, his outstretched arms pointed towards the woods. But he sprang to the side of the man and bent down and peered into his face. There was no face. 